Welcome back to another edition of the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritschner, Rick Broering. Rick, it's been three games since we last talked. Give a little update on where Xavier is ranked AP top 25 still. They're the uh, 21st team in the country, according to the AP and bracket matrix. Uh, Xavier right now, currently the uh, top fifth seed that was updated yesterday, the 26th. Uh, so that would have been before the uh Marquette or the Providence game last night. But if you look at the net, which is updated daily, Xavier right now down at 21. They've been in the mid to high teens. They've been down toward that 20 range, but right now they're at 21. Uh, and then at Ken Palm, Xavier right now at 25. So I know there is a lot of anxiousness about this team. And I think a lot of it maybe could be justified because of the way that Xavier has trended in the last few years when you get late into conference play. But as far as the rankings go, as far as the data goes, as far as the analytics go, everything like that, if you just look at this year in a vacuum, if you're just looking at this team, ignoring the trends of how the last three years have gone down the stretch, this is a team that has set itself, set itself up extremely well for the stretch one of the season. Now it's just a question of can they get the job done? Can they avoid losing a bad game? Can they step up and beat a team last night like Providence that in the end they're going to need to beat to make a run in the tournament, something like that. But for now, Xavier's still sitting more than fine in pretty much every ranking that actually matters. Yeah, I think it's really difficult to separate where things stand right now in this current season and what each game means to this individual team and what's happened with Xavier over the last two seasons. And that's where the anxiousness comes from, from the fan base standpoint. And it's understandable because you are seeing things that look familiar. It feels like a trend when you see some of these things, particularly, I think the, the most frustrating one is the offense going ice cold and just going through these stretches far too often where Nobody can make a shot and not just like, okay, they're only shooting 30% this game from three, but like they go impossibly bad for an entire half and only make like one, three or something like that. Those are the stretches where it's just hard to explain. And when you try to put your finger on what exactly going is going wrong, is it the, the personnel? They're just not getting enough shooters in the program period, which obviously will ultimately fall on the coaching staff. Is it something about this offense for whatever reason, just too often and it, it takes guys out of their rhythm and, and can't get guys enough good looks. I don't know. And, and I understand why fans are frustrated by that. And so when you factor all those things in together, I think that's why you look at this team and you go, they're 14 and five, they're four and four in biggies play. They're doing just fine by all those metrics. But at the same time, it feels like things are dangerously close to being in a, oh no, here we go again scenario for this team. And I think that's kind of the jump off point for this episode of the podcast. I I feel like that's kind of the appropriate temperament of the room right now with the Xavier fan base based on what I'm reading on the message board and, and on social media. Uh, but I just got done recording the skinny podcast before we recorded this one. And one of the things I also mentioned there, I'll say again here, if they went at Creighton on Saturday, and I realize that's a big if, that's going to be a very difficult game. But if they went at Creighton on Saturday, you get Butler at home and DePaul at home back to back. You go three and zero over the next three games, and all of a sudden you're in a position where you're seven and zero in Big East play. You've got this great resume with a couple of important quad one wins already under your belt, and everything is great. You're just, you know, maybe three more wins away from being guaranteed. Uh, seven or eight seed in the tournament, probably at that point. So uh, it, it's amazing how fast the narrative and the storyline can change when you're in the Big East. And when you look at last night's game with Providence building off of that, I don't understand where this narrative is coming from, that Providence is is some janky team that has no business giving Xavier a run for their money at home. I understand that Xavier was eight and a half point favorites. I understand that Xavier should have won that game last night. Maybe the most frustrating thing about it is that you hold Nate Watson scoreless and he has four fouls and you still can't win at home. I understand all that, but this 
complete and total lack of respect for a Providence team right now that is 17 and two. Granted, I know that in the Big East, their best win is against maybe Seton Hall. If you take away Xavier, they beat Connecticut uh, that, you know, they've lost to Marquette, but like they beat Texas Tech. They beat Wisconsin. They beat Connecticut. Like this is a this is a good Providence team. And for some reason, I got on Twitter late last night when I got home and I was reading all these takes that were just completely writing Providence off like they weren't even going to make the tournament. And I, I just I didn't understand where any of that was coming from. Oh, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, they've at this point basically already punched their ticket to the tournament. It's more about seeding for them right now. But th- this game actually told me a lot about Providence. I had underestimated their guards. I did not think their backcourt was as good as they are. Seeing them in person, Bynum is really difficult to guard off the bounce, and Xavier's guards have to get better defensively, I think, on those one-on-one matchups. But also, Al Duro, man, he is really, really good at drawing contact and getting calls from officials. And I saw that I when I was watching some of their games on Synergy. You could tell that that's how he gets a lot of his points is by getting to the free throw line. But when you see it like that in person, up it's it's different. It's like he is he really has a knack, sort of the same way Terrell Holloway did. They do it differently. They they don't draw their fouls the same way. But both of them just had that knack for being able to draw the call from the official, whether they were the ones initiating the contact, whether it was a great call or not. The call always seems to go in their favor when they're driving the ball aggressively. And uh, I was really impressed by their guards. And to be doing that one with Nate Watson doing essentially nothing in the game. And two with AJ Reeves still sidelined with the, the injury that he has, uh, I believe it's a pinky injury or some type of hand injury yeah. um, that's keeping him out. So I, I, the fact that they're winning without those guys tells you that some of those other supporting cast members are better than we realize. Like Justin Minaya, an elite defender. I, I, I knew he was good, but again, seeing him up close like that, it was wow, he's a difference maker on the defensive end. That's why he's playing so many minutes, despite him not giving them a whole lot of offensive firepower. Yeah, and Manaya was the only one that played 40 minutes. He, he played every minute, never came out of the game. But uh, Al Durham, he plays 38 minutes, scores 22 points, didn't miss a free throw. He had 10 of Providence's 14 free throws. When you talk about getting fouled, getting the line, uh, he was able to do that, and he knocked them all down. Difference maker there. He finished five for 16 from the field. But when you look at the guards in the post, you felt like Xavier probably had the edge in the backcourt, and Providence probably had the edge in the front court. But then you go and you look and see that they both had 35 rebounds, and Xavier outscored Providence by 12 in the paint. So it was maybe a little bit flipped in the, in the stats from where you thought that this game was going to play out. Yeah, the exact opposite of what I thought. I thought if Xavier could come anywhere close to evening out the battle in the front court, that the guards would be able to win their matchups and it'd be a positive for Xavier. But in the end, it was the opposite. And I thought to a certain extent, that's a good sign for Xavier because one, it showed that they were tough enough to handle a physically imposing front court and not get bullied, not get beat up when we've seen Every Big East team they've played has made it a point to attack them inside. I mean, even Villanova with Eric Dixon, which they don't typically try to throw him the ball inside as a as a post-up scorer at all. They went right after Zach Fremantle right away in, in both games. So I think that's a good sign that they're improving their interior defense. And also, this was the best game that Zach Fremantle's played, in my opinion, to this point. I didn't see near the amount of mess ups defensively there might have been a a miscommunication or two on some things on the perimeter but in terms of getting bullied inside or offering no resistance or blowing a ball screen coverage I didn't see any of that out of him I thought he was pretty solid and uh, he finished well around the rim he missed a lot of his mid-range attempts but he was good around the rim in this game and I think he's showing signs of progress which is a really good sign for this Xavier team my counterpoint there Rick he didn't have any fouls (laughs) that's that's right that's what we talked about right I was I was all in on the just tell him to go foul some people that'll get better but he is he is showing signs of improvement and offering more resistance on the defensive end and that's all you really wanted to see as a Xavier fan is like just be tougher somehow some way like offer any resistance when guys are pushing against you in the post and he's starting to do that 
And how about Colby Jones playing down to the post of 12 rebounds? And it felt like he was just always at the right place at the right time, coming flying in to get a rebound, end of possession, get that board and turn the ball back up Xavier's way. Uh, he led the team 12 rebounds. He was the only Xavier player who had 12 rebounds. No Horkler had 11 for Providence, but those were the only two in double figures rebounding. And he finished with nine points, a point shy of a double double. Uh, and he had a three, too. I know we've seen Kobe struggle uh, sometimes shooting the ball. He only took one three, and he made it. So I thought Kobe had a, a pretty good game last night, at, at least from that perspective. Yeah, I think the one thing that Kobe found out was Justin Maya can really guard. Because early on in that game, he had a difficult time. He was trying to attack and, and go off the bounce, and he was being defended by Manaya, and he'd get in the lane, and all of a sudden that length, made a difference and he was off a couple times. I think he got blocked on one of his shot attempts early. So he and Paul Scruggs got off to a really rough start in this game. Both of them seem to be forcing the issue a bit much. Scruggs definitely, he got blocked twice. He was 0 for 4 from the field to start. He had the two turnovers where he was kind of driving into no man's land and then just firing a pass one back in off Nunji's shoulder. And uh, I can't remember exactly how the other happened, but I know he had another early turnover and um, you know, it's tough with Paul right now because on one hand, you can't have him start a game like that and help you dig yourself a 14 point hole on the other side. You know, there's, there's some people that'll tell you he should be benched and he shouldn't be playing in these situations. Well, if that happens, you're not coming back in that game because Paul Scruggs was the catalyst down the stretch to get Xavier back in the game. He scored 10 of, I think the final 16 points for the Musketeers and he had the big three to put him up by two with 50 something seconds to go. I mean, Paul Scruggs is making a lot of plays for this team that no one else seems capable of making or is willing to step up and make at this point. So uh, this idea that Paul Scruggs shouldn't be playing, I I can understand the idea that you do what Travis Steele did early in this game, which is, Hey, he got off to a terrible start, put him on the bench pretty quickly, get Odom in there, let Paul settle down and just say, Hey, take a breather. We need you to make smarter decisions. But ultimately he's got to be out there the majority of the game for this team. I don't, I don't think this team has any chance of achieving what they're capable of or getting where they want to go. If Paul Scruggs isn't playing a ton of minutes and playing well. For some reason, the loss at Marquette and the loss last night. And again, I'll reiterate, it's frustrating when you lose because no, uh, Nate Watson doesn't score. And and the way that Xavier played down in the post, I, I understand that. But for some reason to me, Losing at Marquette and losing a top 25 game against a Providence team that's all of a sudden right at the top of the Big East standings, neither one of those losses really got under my skin or or frustrated me to the extent that maybe I had been frustrated in in years past with a loss like that. Really, the the Marquette loss, it was was like, I don't know. To me, Xavier has struggled before at Marquette, and it was – a situation where I was looking at that game going into it saying if Xavier wins, it would be nice if they lose. Frankly, it was kind of to be expected just the way that Marquette had been playing and it's a tough environment, all that. And last night losing a top 25 game at home, I get home and I start reading the message board and I see, you know, Paul Scruggs benched uh, Chris Mack back as Xavier's head coach. I see, uh, I see Travis Steele being fired and I see Xavier should go back to the A-10. And I'm I'm sitting here thinking, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I I understand the frustration of the last three years, but I just, I just don't, I I don't get, I don't see at all. I really don't see where all of that comes from when there's clearly more to be positive about with this team than years past, but I just always am glass half full as opposed to glass half empty. And and that's just how I look at it. So maybe that's, maybe that's my own fault, but. Well, I go back to what I said at the top that I think right now it's really hard for everyone to separate the current situation and this individual team from what they've seen the last two years. And when you look at it through that prism, the anxiousness the, some of the stuff that's being said that you're talking about yeah. is totally unreasonable, obviously. 
but yeah. it is easier to understand where some people are coming from when you see the pattern and it's three straight games. You know, you can't have that. Like it's one thing to have it for one bad game or, Hey, you lost a couple of close ones, but you really did fight and some shots just weren't going down, but it's like to dig yourself these massive holes in the first half and to have these same things go wrong. And you have these halves where you shoot so poorly from the outside that is hard to separate from the yeah. last two years. And it's understandable in that regard. And, and I get where people are coming from. I don't understand any of the nonsense about, you know, getting rid of people or benching some of your top players, because that ultimately doesn't solve the problem. If this team is going to say, Hey, Zach Fremantle and Paul Scruggs aren't good enough for us anymore. We got to go to the young guys. Well, you're starting over. I mean, you're, you're starting back where Travis Steele started this whole thing a couple of years ago. You, you don't want to do that. You want to get, the most out of your experienced best players, ideally. And I'm not saying they can't come out of the game a little bit more often, but I thought Travis handled Paul Scruggs well at the beginning of the Providence game. He, he was out of control. He was making mistakes and forcing it. He sat him down for a few minutes and then he got him back in there. And I thought Paul played pretty well the rest of the way. There was another mistake or two, but he offered a whole lot more positive the final 30 minutes of that game than he did negative. And that's what you're going to need out of him. And, and by the way, fifth-year seniors, seniors in general, have a tendency to do that late in the season. You know, they have a tendency to play their best basketball right there when they kind of see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. So I definitely wouldn't count Paul Scruggs out from turning this year around and, and still having a really solid final season here. He's just he, – it really comes down, in my mind, to not forcing things. And maybe – that's what he's trying to do a little bit too much of. Maybe right now he's looking at this as, hey, this is my last go around. I've got to lead this team. I got to, it's got to be on my shoulders. And he's just trying to do a little too much. And I, I think that's where if he can just play within himself and trust his teammates more and focus more on being the playmaker that he was to start last season early on, that's, that's where he'll be at his best. And looking at the lineups too, and you talk about, just the way that Travis was able to rotate some of those guys through it obviously should mention here that they did change the starting lineup. Jack Nunji uh, got put into the starting lineup last night. Nunji uh, quite frankly, kept Xavier in this game, led the team 15 or well, second Scruggs led the team actually 16 points. Nunji though uh, was the only one that made more than one three in the game uh finished with 15 on six and nine shooting had nine rebounds so yeah he scored uh, 13 gets, of those in the first half too so uh, the, the slow start wasn't a result of him being moved into the starting lineup he wasn't the issue yeah but to everybody who had been asking about making a move in the starting lineup Nunji gets put in there finishes with 15 and and like you said was part of the reason that Xavier maybe wasn't even down more at one point Xavier was down 14 in, in the first half uh, did you see anything, Rick, out of the rotation, out of the starting lineup, anything that you thought, okay, this played out differently? And I know it's hard to look at because Xavier was down 14 points. So it's not like they changed the starting lineup. They come out here and they're all of a sudden up 14 points and everything's fixed. I don't think anybody expected that. Or maybe if you did expect it, it was probably not going to be a reality. But uh, what were, did you have any thoughts there on, on that change? I think this is the right lineup. This is the lineup I thought they'd, they'd always end up going to eventually when Zach Fremantle finally got back to being himself or whatever. I, I thought Jack would end up starting more games along the way, but here we are. I think this is probably the most likely starting lineup the rest of the way, assuming everyone is healthy. And I don't think any of their issues falling behind 14 early in this one had to do with who was starting the game. And I don't think that's really been the issue prior to this either. Now I, I do think they should be limiting Jerome Hunter's minutes more to like what he got in this one, which I think he ended up playing like nine minutes in this. Yep. Nine minutes. Yeah. Nine. So I, I think that's, that's more where he belongs on this team is, is playing single digits and getting Jack and Zach on the floor as, as often as you can. Um, I also like the smaller lineup though, too, at times. And I think that's a way you can play Dwan more often is when you put Colby down at the four and you go with the smaller lineup. I think Dwan is much more effective and you space the floor easier and that gives him a little more room to operate. So I think those two lineups are really what you're going to ride the rest of the way, depending on matchups and depending on, 
who's playing well on a given night. But yeah, ultimately the starting lineup wasn't an issue in this game. I think the change makes sense and it's, it's what you're going to continue to see, but they've just got to find a way to come out better. I don't know what the answer is. You got to make more shots. You have to not turn the ball over, you know, in terms of shot selection, Travis Steele said after the game that he thought this shot selection was good. I think early on there were too many forced threes. Now, I don't think it was terrible. And certainly for the game overall, I think it was pretty solid. It wasn't, that wasn't what cost them the game in the long run. But during that early stretch when they fell behind and why they got off to a slow start, I do think, you know, Adam Kunkel had two forced threes there that neither one of them were very good looks, especially you let Adam have a little bit longer leash because he can get it going like that and he's streaky, but you'd like to see him make a normal one first before he starts attempting the crazy heat check type shots. And then you had Jerome Hunter forcing a silly one, which at this point, Jerome Hunter should be shooting nothing but perfect spot up looks that are in rhythm. He shouldn't ever take a a bad three pointer. So it's some mental errors like that, that I think are really frustrating people and that this team has to work past. But to close the half, you cut it down from 14 to six. It was a real strong close to the half. And then they come right out of halftime and tie the game, which is exactly the way it played out on Sunday too. And to your point about starting better, you look at how they've dug themselves in holes, even going back to the Villanova game at Villanova in December, where you start really well, but then in the second half, you come out and you lay a total egg and it's that one bad half of basketball that has hurt Xavier at points this year. And when you get down into the Big East schedule, there are times in non-conference season where you're playing somebody, it doesn't matter as much where you dig yourself into that hole. But when you're getting with all these teams that are so familiar with you and there is so much talent in this conference, everything, that if you continually put yourself down by 14, 10, 16 points, whatever it is, you're just not going to be able to come out and get back into a game like that. Villanova at home, all of them. And last night, Xavier, they kept getting it within like three. Then they get it within five. Then they get it within three. But when you're down 14 to start, instead of playing them even, those runs are only just to get you back into the game and not to put you over the top. The only two leads that Xavier had in the game was when it was 2 nothing. And then when it was 62 to 60, when Paul made that three with like 51 seconds left. So it's, it's just, it's just tough. Like you said, to dig yourself out of a hole when you keep putting yourself into it, but going from the starting lineup, I think we should talk now about the end of the game. And Paul gets a look there at the very end, which me personally, I thought it was a great look. He got right to the rim and it it went halfway down and rolled out, but I don't think there was anything wrong with what happened there at the end of the game on Xavier's part, besides maybe how they then got back and transitioned to recover off of the miss. But as far as the offensive look that Xavier was going for to win the game, I, I don't know why there would be any complaints about that. I didn't have any issues with the shot that Paul got. I thought it was a good look. He rimmed it in and out. It looked like it was going to go down. I had no issues with that. Plus, he had multiple defenders coming over to help on him and challenge that shot. So, had it rimmed out more towards the front, Colby Jones was right over the front of the rim for a potential stick back. You know, so it's like that's what you want to get in that situation is get something where you're drawing help defense, you're getting it up off the rim, you're giving yourself a chance for a second effort if you don't make the original shot. It just didn't go their way. And then Jared Bynum made a great shot at the other end. I don't think there was really anything that you could have done a whole lot better. Was it perfect transition defense and and sprinting back and, and uh, sprinting back on that end? No, it wasn't, but was it pretty good and good enough to, to usually get you to overtime in that situation? Yeah, it was. I mean, they had two guys back. They stopped the ball from getting all the way to the rim. They made them take a three and they made the three-point shooter reset his shot, take a dribble, and then shoot it. Like, that's what you want to do in an end-of-game scenario. People are saying Colby Jones flew past him. It was undisciplined. 
No, that's what you want to make a shooter with a couple seconds left have to reset and take that shot. The odds go way down when a guy has to do that at the three-point line. So I thought they did a really good job in transition there for the most part. Um, The only slight thing that Adam Kunkel did wrong, I think, was he was the guy who was supposed to be sprinting back when the shot went up, and he initially kind of broke in towards the free throw line and then had to sprint back. But again, I mean, he didn't get beat to the rim in transition, which is what you're really worried about. So uh, ultimately, you got to tip your cap to Jared Bynum, I think, in that situation. The real issue for Xavier is that it came down to a, a buzzer beater shot in their own gym, and they weren't able to, to put that game away earlier. And that's a result of getting down 28 to 14 in the first half. You just can't do that in your own gym, especially when you played well enough in the interior and defensively to keep Nate Watson from dominating you. You only turned the ball over eight times. One of those was the final possession of the game with what like 1.2 seconds left or whatever it was. We tried the full court pass. So that really didn't even count. Like while you were playing the game, you had seven turnovers and you played good defense on the interior and didn't get bullied inside. That's a game that you need to find a way to win and put away before it comes down to the final possession like that. So Yeah, I didn't have a big problem with the shot from Paul Scruggs. The only thing I was a little confused about was it looked like it was intended to be a similar play to the one they've run a a few times in late-game situations where you've got Jack Nungy sealing out the the post and and Paul driving down that side. Paul, again, went to the left instead of the right. But had he gone to the right where it looked like it was set up towards, Fremantle was the man in the corner there set up. I I'd prefer a shooter there in that corner to keep the defense a little more honest and give you another option. I don't feel great about kicking to Zach Fremantle in that situation for a corner three potentially as an outlet. So I'm not sure exactly how that was drawn up or what they were trying to get, but I didn't love the alignment for them on that possession, but ultimately I thought the shot was fine. Yeah. And it was the exact opposite of what happened last year at Cintas. Ed Cooley talked about that after the game with Colby hitting a shot with two tenths of a seconds left or whatever it was. And, and uh, now it gets flipped both at Xavier, but Providence seems like always gives Xavier a game like this. And even going back to that JP shot in Providence, like four or five years ago, it just seems like these teams go back and forth and this kind of stuff has happened over the years. Of course, last year at Providence was the Noah Horkler game, but it, it just, it just with Providence last night, especially it just Xavier just had no, no rhythm in the first half. And for so long, the only, the only field goal for a huge stretch of that first 10 minutes was the one where Adam Kunkel caught that touchdown type home run pass into the back court and just found Dewan streaking down the court and he laid it in, but there was no real offensive shot making for the first maybe 10 minutes of the game. So, yeah, it was a complete struggle for Xavier on the offensive end. And that's that's the part that's so weird with this team and frustrating. It's like at times they can look so good on offense and a lot of it's predicated on their flow game and getting the ball moving around the perimeter. And I, I just wonder how reliant were they on Nate Johnson? Because ultimately to have that ball flying all over the place like that, it only works when there's a threat that someone's going to make a three at the end of all that ball movement, right? If you just kick it out to guys who can't shoot, it becomes a whole lot easier to defend. And I wonder with Nate Johnson, just not being able to make shots right now, how much is that just impacting everything else and making it tighter? You've seen how much they've struggled on shots around the rim recently. You just wonder, is that all a result of defenses tightened up a little bit, not respecting the three-point shot as much because they're struggling in that way? I, I don't know. It's tough to put your finger on. And and even when I watch the film back and, and go through the games possession by possession, it's still hard to figure out exactly what's going wrong because it feels like Xavier is getting a lot of good looks most of the time. Yeah, but for Adam Kunkel and Nate Johnson to combine to go, what was it, 0 for 8 from, yeah, thir- from 3? From three. They both go 0 for 4. This team goes from being the team that we see now to the team that we see in the non-conference when those guys are making shots just because of the way they can space the floor. And the ceiling for this team will be reached when those guys start to hit shots consistently. I think that's it's hard to say that there's one simple fix to all of this, but maybe the simplest fix is just getting those guys hot again 
Yeah. And the good thing about Nate is he's been cold for so long at this point. You know, it's, I mean, it's a legit slump for him that you're hoping he's going to come out of it. That's like, you know, hopefully it's happening at the right time of the year. So he's shooting well again by the end of the year when you really need him. And I think that's a legit possibility. I don't think Nate Johnson just can't shoot anymore for good. Like this is a, a thing that <laughs> Big East teams are locking him up because he's getting some open looks. He's just not putting them down. Uh, I, I think he'll bounce back at some point. So uh, that's a major issue for Xavier right now. Long-term, I do think, he'll return to form. Conkle's always just a little more streaky and uh, you know, he'll, he'll be able to sometimes carry you in a game and hit several of them. And then other games he'll be zero for four, like he was last night. Again, I think the thing for him was he, he needs a little bit of a leash to play with that. And he has to take a bad shot or two, but he, this offense as a whole just has too many guys that are willing to force bad looks out of rhythm, looks quick looks. It can't be everyone. You know, if, if Conkle's yeah. going to be that guy occasionally, that's fine, but preferably do it after you've made one or two in rhythm and then take your heat check shot. And for the other guys, really, I don't know that there's another shooter on this team other than Nate Johnson that should ever take a bad three-point look, really. You know, maybe Paul Scruggs occasionally, but that's about it. Everyone else should be taking perfect in-rhythm spot-up looks, or they should be looking to attack like hell off the bounce and get paint touches and draw fouls. The one other thing with this game that I saw people talking about, and and this is something I've always had an issue with, is the idea of a game like this being a must-win game. If you tell me that a game is a must-win game, Rick, in my mind, that means that if you do not win this game, the season is effectively over. There is no reason why any game before you know, the middle of February should be a game where if you don't win this game, then everything is lost. I will, I will understand the fact that you're trending maybe not in the right direction from the way the last few games have gone, but to sit here and say that now, because Xavier loses to Providence, who is a a top 25 team. And I know, I know that Providence is 42 or whatever in the net or what are or, or in the in Ken Palm 47 whatever they are I understand that the computers don't like Providence as much as as the human eyes do but there's not a ton of shame in losing on essentially a buzzer beater to a team that is playing as well right now as Providence and the idea that this must win game happens on January 26th where you have a chance still if you're Xavier to go out there the rest of the season and I mean, turn turn it around again on Saturday at Creighton. It, it's a tough game, but I mean, you still have Creighton, Seton Hall, Connecticut, Connecticut again, Providence again, Seton Hall again. There are some legitimate games on this schedule that if you split those games, even we're talking about a, a single digit seed. This is not like all of a sudden because Xavier loses to Providence in January in a must win game that all of a sudden now they're going to be in Dayton playing in the, in the first four. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a silly concept that any generalized sweeping statements about this season are pretty much ridiculous, but again, it, it all is intertwined with what's happened the last few years. I think when people are saying these things, I don't think it comes from like anyone talking about must win games in the big East when you're in the top half of the conference right now. Like it doesn't exist. It doesn't make, there are, there are no must win games right now occurring for the teams that are in the top half of the conference. They're all still in the mix. Most of the teams aren't separated by much in terms of metrics. All these games are kind of similar. So like these last two losses, not a big deal at all in terms of what it means for Xavier's resume, their overall season. That doesn't really matter. I totally understand that you don't want to see them play the way they did the last three games in a row like that. You don't want to see them crumble late in the season again. You don't want to see them give up important games against good competition at the Cintas Center in a game that felt like it was there for the taking. It was close. They took the lead late. They couldn't find a way to hang on. That sucks. It feels a lot like things felt last <laughs> year, and I totally understand that. Like That yep. part makes so much sense to me. But yeah, when you bring it into must-win games or anything that's like, a big sweeping statement about this current season, it all falls apart. Like it just doesn't make sense. They will be judged ultimately on what happens this year. That is a fact. Like they they need to make the tournament this year. I am 100% in that camp. I, I don't deny that, but 
when it comes to all that stuff, you got to let them get to the end of the year before you can start saying all this stuff. <laughs> because what happens if they're a six seed in the NCAA tournament? You know, what happens if they end up in the Sweet 16? Which I don't think from what we've seen over the course of the year from this group, we can rule any of these things out right now. Now we can't rule out the fact that they may crumble again down the stretch and somehow miss the tournament. And then we'll be able to have all those conversations that some fans are so, so desperately eager to have right now. But it just doesn't really make sense with this team to be talking about those types of things. I mean, I I understand people want to see them play better and that that makes total sense to me. I get why it's frustrating, but it's just, it's, it's difficult to have conversations about this team right now because (laughs) if you try to talk about the current team everyone wants to talk about the past and when you talk about the past including it with this current team it's really not fair and doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we're being honest yeah you're you're exactly right um rick before we move on to a couple other things i think we want to talk about here uh did you have anything from last night in the sense of of how xavier I don't know, closed out in that second half, maybe things you saw differently in the second half as opposed to just making shots. Was, was there anything you saw differently in the second half last night that Xavier can take away from that, that maybe you can build on on the road at, at Creighton on Saturday? Was there, what, what did you see positively out of Xavier last night, Rick, that gives you some, uh, some confidence in this team moving forward? I think the last 30 minutes of that game was a really good high-level basketball game on both sides. You had both teams playing well, and I think that's where Travis Steele's comments really came from. If you're the head coach and you're caught up in the moment like that, I think you remember most of those 30 minutes where your team was working for good shots. They were playing aggressively on offense and attacking and not settling for quick threes and playing the way that's going to get you back on track. Ultimately, they weren't forcing it. They were trusting each other. All of that stuff did happen. It just happened after they were down by 14 and you're playing against a good team. So it is a battle at that point. But I mean, obviously they outplayed them the rest of the way to only lose on a a buzzer beater, be up by two in the final minute. I mean, they came back from a 14 point deficit for a reason because they played really well against a Providence team that's playing really well. So there's there's a lot of positives to take away from the, the way they played. I don't think Travis Steele was wrong for the most part about his comments about they got good shots. They moved the ball much better than they had the last two games. There were definite improvements. And again, I think the, the biggest takeaway for me is Zach Freeman is starting to look like a valuable member of this team and the guy that isn't leading them in scoring and isn't taking over games on the offensive end, but can be relied upon to be in there on defense and rebound a little bit. I'd like to see him do even more of that, to be quite honest, especially on the offensive glass, because he's not as, they're not playing through him as much. They're not relying on him to take as many shots. So I think he could get more aggressive on, on trying to get on the offensive glass where he was really good as a high school prospect. So there's still plenty more there to get out of Zach Fremantle, but he's finally trending in the right direction where you're starting to see some positive returns from him. So uh, there was a lot to take away from the second half of that game in particular that I thought was a positive for Xavier. It just is all overshadowed by the fact that they couldn't come up with the win late. Yeah. Well, one other thing that we need to talk about here, Rick, before we, we sign off on this podcast is uh, the situation down at Louisville right now. And I'll share my thoughts first on on Mac and how it's all played out. I think the prevailing opinion with how this situation has gone down, at least among the Xavier fan base or community, is that I don't think anybody can blame Chris for leaving and going to, what, triple your salary, whatever it was that he was going down there to take, to go and take a job that he clearly looked at for a while, to go down there, take a job, make as much money as he was making at a program with as much history as Louisville, I don't think there was any reason to fault him or be mad at him for leaving. But at the same time, I think there is also a feeling amongst Xavier that there's not a lot of, uh, I don't think there's a lot of sympathy for the way that this has now turned out in the last few weeks where it's become very clear that, he wasn't going to last past this season. I'm not sure really anybody expected him to get fired in the middle of the season, or I guess to 
part ways. Uh, is that what they're calling it? I think, I think they're parting yeah, ways. Mutually parting I, ways. Yeah. They agreed to yeah, a settlement sure. for him to leave. Yeah. Sure. But he's gone. He, he was pushed out and I don't think there was, I don't think there was any real uh, surprise that he wasn't going to be the coach in 22, 23, but the fact that it's happening now at the end of January with still a third of your season left, you know, good for Mike Pegues to get in there. Somebody that's been at Xavier for so long. And a lot of Xavier fans are familiar with Pegues will coach the rest of the season for, uh, for Louisville. And he had a few games already when, when Mac was suspended that he was going to, uh, that he was the head coach for. So Pegues will slide in there, but I think the idea with Mac is you don't blame Mac for leaving Xavier. You don't blame him for taking the money for taking a step to Louisville in, in your career to, to make that kind of a move. But at the same time, I think a lot of Xavier fans are thinking, well, okay, he left. He was another coach that left. You look at all the other coaches that have left. You look at Sean Miller that said the grass isn't always greener. He leaves and now this has happened and it's just, it is what it is. It's amazing at how quickly this all went bad for him because I mean, really he was 68 and 37 overall, 38 and 23 in the ACC. I mean, you look at his seasons is his first year. He was a seven seed in the NCAA tournament. He was in on pace to be a four seed, maybe better, maybe worse in the year that the NCAA tournament got called off. Last year was a disappointment. They missed the NCAA tournament. And this year has obviously been a disaster, but we're talking about a year and a half at most, maybe even less than that, that this thing totally went nuts on him and, and got out of hand. And I think, I mean, if we're being honest and I've always felt this was a misstep ever since he took the job, hiring Dino Gaudio was the worst decision that he could have made because you, you got a guy that quite frankly, just couldn't recruit at this level anymore. He had been out of the game doing TV for too long. His contacts weren't the same. He's not connecting to the younger kids. Like he once did. He's just an older guy and that's not his fault, but it's just, the reality of the situation of when you're hiring an, an older guy and doing him a favor like that because you have a good personal relationship with them, that was a mistake. And maybe that was a little bit of arrogance on Chris's part to think we'll be able to recruit well enough without him and, and we'll get it done. We don't we can, don't need that spot to be a big-time recruiter. Well, not only did it backfire on him because they didn't get good enough players in and he wasn't able to get along with Luke Murray, which is pretty clear from the fact that they both had to be let go. But then you have the whole extortion thing, and it turns into a massive embarrassment for Louisville at a time when the only thing they really wanted out of you was to avoid being nationally embarrassed again. And you made that happen. And not only did you make it happen, but you really did it over something that wasn't that big of a deal. You took it to the FBI, and it got blown up to this huge national story. And ultimately, like all of the stuff just shouldn't have been a big like it's secondary violations that don't really matter but when you're louisville and you're hearing violations and you've got ncla sanctions over hanging over your head and all the things that have happened in the recent past have happened you know what the storyline is going to be nationally and it, it, it happened exactly the way you would expect so i think that was really the moment when this all turned on him and you saw that when the university suspended him for the first six games you don't suspend your head coach for the first six games for stuff like that. If you believe in him and he's a guy that you're going to try to continue to win with, because that's only setting him up for failure and potentially adding losses and keeping him from making an NCAA tournament. What they were doing was starting to build a case for firing him with cause and to get out of his $12 million buyout. And I think at that point, I can't, you know, I can't tell you what Chris and his agent were or weren't trying to do or what conversations were had, but you have to think at some point they had to realize and thought the best thing for you is going to be to try to get out of this as soon as possible while they don't have a president, while they don't have a real AD, they have an interim AD right now, and try to get them when they're not really prepared to battle a big legal case and try to get all of their buyout money back and fire you for cause let's just take what we can get right now. And I guess the answer to that was 4.8 million, which not bad money. You know, he'll be getting paid well every month until 2025 from them. It's not a terrible thing to not have to do your job anymore and get paid like that. So, uh, you know, Chris 
handled it really well. I think when he announced that he was leaving and said, he's not going to play the victim role and people shouldn't feel bad for him. And I don't think they will, you know, he's, he's going to get a ton of money and he got to coach at the highest level of the game. And this is why you get paid a lot of money to do something like that, because it can be really tough on you. It can be really tough on your family and you can get embarrassed publicly and uh, ultimately you might get fired publicly. And that's kind of what it came down to. So I, I think it's uh, a, a tough situation for his family, especially because his girls are at that age where they're going to high school. And that, that definitely sucks to have to one read about your parents in the news. And then two, who knows what's in store for their future. And, and they have to deal with that uncertainty. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, Rick. And and if you haven't watched, if any of you listening, haven't watched the video yet, he basically did a pseudo press conference outside of his car in a parking lot. And I thought he handled that really well. I thought the questions were fair and I thought his answers were fair. I thought it was a really well done two and a half minutes or at least the clips that we saw. I don't know if it was longer. I only saw the iPhone video that uh, one of the reporters shot, but just the way he was answering and taking responsibility for everything and, and understanding where his situation was. I think the, the, most intriguing thing to me now about this whole situation is we all knew when he was at Xavier or, or then when he left to go to Louisville that he wasn't intending on being in the coaching business forever. Like had he stayed at Xavier, he wasn't going to be at Xavier till he was 75 years old. When he went to Louisville, he made it very clear in his introductory press conference that I, I in fact, I think I saw that clip the other day. It had resurfaced that he said, I'm never going to coach again beyond Louisville. The, the idea was maybe he coaches seven, nine, 10 years, and that's it. And then he retires. He had always said he wanted to retire young. And now he's let go way sooner than anybody expected him to be. It's all the tweets surfacing that Paul Scruggs outlasted. Paul Scruggs was at Xavier and, and outlasted Chris at, at Louisville. So there's definitely this idea that, okay, now Chris, does he go back and find some maybe lower tier type of school and not leave such a sour taste in his mouth from the coaching business? Cause he's, he's certainly not somebody that's going to go into broadcasting. I, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that, that really he would not. You don't think so. I don't think so. I think there, I, I'm not saying he will for certain, but I think Chris as much as he can sometimes not want to give a good interview or be prickly sometimes during an interview, I think he's also charismatic and pretty funny when he wants to be on camera and he can do a decent job of those things. I think if you're right that the prevailing sentiment when he was at Xavier at the end was he didn't want to coach for a lot longer and that he would be the type of guy that would be fine to collect the big paycheck from Louisville as long as he could get it sail off into the sunset at his lake house, be a bass pro fisherman, try to get on ESPN doing that, maybe coaches girls teams. All of that was very real. You heard it from people that were pretty close friends with him that have a good relationship with them. Jeff Goodman, who obviously was the closest of the national reporters to Chris and was always the go-to source for information about Chris, has said the same thing since the, the Louisville stuff came to an end. He has said that he could see Chris truly being done. I think that's a legit possibility. But like you said, there's that sour taste now of it didn't work out for me. And all these guys are super competitive. I think there will be part of Chris that'll be pulled to maybe do a year or two of the broadcast route, have some fun with that, and then come back like John Gross at a mid-major level. And uh, I think he would still be a guy who people would want at that level. Yeah, I, I think I, I just don't see Chris as somebody that if if he's not going to go into coaching anymore. Now, maybe he does like a, you know, like a March Madness type deal where they bring him on a panel or something. But to turn into somebody like a Seth Greenberg, who's like a mainstay uh, yeah. at, at, at ESPN or something like that, or, or a constant. Or a Dino Gaudio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I just don't see it. Now, if he has to do, like you said, kind of like what Sean Miller is doing right now, where it's an image rehab type deal where he's on for a year or two and then goes and picks up. Uh, oh man. I, I don't even, I, I can't even think of a type of school. Maybe we can talk about that here in a second, but 
maybe there, but I, I just don't see him. And I could be totally wrong. I, I just never got the impression that he was somebody who would want to become the face of some sort of a show on, on an ESPN or something like that. What if Chris Mack was the next head coach at Dayton? Oh, he, <laughs> that would never happen. I don't think he wouldn't he do that. Right. Would go. No, I don't think he and his family would go. Here is my well, his idea. wife, his wife, his wife. <laughs> yeah. But they uh, called her bad names last time they're at UD arena, I believe. So I think uh, she's out on UD now, but uh, I said, why not just have Bellerman and Louisville switch coaches? Scott Scott Davenport takeover at Louisville because there are people clamoring for him last time when they hired Chris. He would be a good bridge guy, stabilize the program. Everyone will like him. He'll be a good diplomat and got in the community and, and fundraise and do everything well there. You get him through a three or four year period and and then maybe you look at moving on if things haven't gone well. But you know, you know, it's not gonna go the the wrong direction too far with him at the helm. And Chris, I mean at Bellarmine, that's a perfect type spot for him. They're trying to get things moving as they uh, look to potentially change conferences. And Scott's son, Doug Davenport, formerly worked under Chris at Xavier. He's the head coach in waiting at Bellarmine, but I'm not sure if he's quite there yet. Maybe Chris could groom him a little bit farther until he's ready and take over, and then Chris can ride off into the sunset. I think it's perfect. Just have Bellarmine and Louisville switch coaches, and everyone would be good. Yeah, I, I think people wouldn't especially down in the Louisville area I'm not sure anybody would really complain about that but do you think Chris uh, now look I know we're just we're just going back and forth here but like to go from Xavier to Louisville to a a Bellarmine type school like do you know Chris well enough to know that he would do something like that or no no? I I don't and I actually do believe like I do not think he's going to coach right now I I definitely don't think I don't either back into something right now I think he will take a break Um, now is he done for good? I'm not willing to say that or go as strongly as some others are, but I will agree with you that that was 100% what was said about him before he left Xavier, that Louisville would be it for him. Even if it was only five, six years, he would be fine with that being it and getting a big enough payday. And that's why he was leaving for Louisville to collect that payday. And he could retire early if he wanted and, and enjoy his life. So I could see it happening. I he's, He's a guy who's a little bit different from some of these other coaches. And I know he doesn't like recruiting the way some of the other coaches do. So I, I could definitely see it being a possibility at the same time. Like we said, they're all super competitive, man. And when you put in the idea that it didn't work out for him at his last stop, I think there will always be part of him that wants to say I could get back in and do this again and, and win at a high level again. So do you yeah. have any names that you like for the Louisville job while we're on the topic? Well, I know people had thrown around Bruce Pearl, and frankly, I don't know if Louisville would want to dip their toe into the Bruce Pearl waters. I think that's crazy, don't you? Like, I, I think I, that I can't believe people be, are taking it so seriously because it seems like that's everyone will just make fun of them. They'll be embarrassed again. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like with the job that Pearl has done at Auburn, and I don't know how substantial the reports are that that uh, Pearl has all this inch. I saw somebody reported the other day that Pearl is desperate for the job. I don't know how substantial any of that is, but it seems to me, if you're Louisville, you go after somebody that is going to, you go back to what you said, somebody that is just not going to be an embarrassment and stabilize this program for the next few years. And maybe you don't go get John Wooden, you know, maybe you don't go get somebody like that, but you get somebody that's just going to do the job well enough to make the fans happy and to make sure everything doesn't go south again, because there's no, the, the AD, the president, the, the leadership at Louisville right now is going to have to make a big decision for this program to stabilize things the right way to make sure that going forward, where you were in the national championship game in 2013 and you had one of the greatest coaches of all time and Rick Pitino, who, by the way, all that guy does is win. I know he's at Iona, but I mean, come on. The guy just goes from one stop to the next to the next and he wins. Oh. And I get you had to let him go. They'd but take like, him back right now if they could. Oh, he do you think he'd go back? I don't know. I, I really don't know if he would. But I you have to think if they offered, he'd say yes. I just don't. There's no way that the academia people will let them off. No, 
No, I, I, I meant that more so as like, just do you think Rick would go back? I, th- I think he, although he might just be stubborn enough to be spiteful about <laughs> it all and the way it went down and say, F you, I, you know, I hope you are in turmoil for the next 25 years for what you did. Yeah. There, so yeah, I could well, see him doing have, that. Do you have any names for Louisville that you've heard or, or anything, or just that you like? Yeah, the name that keeps coming up uh, that everyone seems to like that I've talked to so far is Kenny Payne. That's the preliminary name. But I'm, I'm a little surprised by that just because it didn't seem like he was taken that seriously as a legit candidate when Chris got hired. And he was his credentials were no different at that time. He was a few years younger. He's 55 now, but, you know, he was, what, 51 at the time when Chris would have gotten hired. So. I, I'm a little surprised that people believe he has so much better of a chance now. I know there was some support for him the first time around, and there will be some support for him again the second time around, but I don't know that that support's going to be any more significant or changed at all. So that that's a name I keep hearing from everybody from a preliminary standpoint. I think um, a name that I find very intriguing and Skinny and I talked about a lot today was Mick Cronin. Oh, my God. I, I think Mick would love to take over for Chris and succeed where Chris could. Please, I, I think he would love that. I think Louisville, things are going good for him at UCLA, but Louisville is much closer to home. His family is still here. It's in a giant horse racing community, which he's into, which I know he has at UCLA right now too. But uh, I don't know. I think it all fits. I'm not sure that he would do it, but he has the familiarity with the school. He worked there under Patino, but he's not necessarily considered a quote-unquote Patino guy like a Kevin Willard is as much. So I I could see Mick Cronin potentially being a a really good candidate for this. I think Ed Cooley is another name. One thing I have heard from multiple people who would have an idea is that a minority coach is going to be under heavy consideration that there are, there was a really strong push last time. And there are a lot of people on the board and at Louisville who feel that it's time to have a minority head coach there. And that's going to be given a lot of consideration. So Kenny Payne, Ed Cooley, another guy that might kind of fall in that bridge category, being a little bit older at 66, Kelvin Sampson at Houston, I think would be a really good name to look for. Other than that, I, I'm I'm not sure if there's there doesn't seem to be any home run names, no clear cut home run hires that make obvious sense. But I also think you have to look at the Louisville job sort of in the same vein that you would LSU in football or USC in football, where the answer may not be an obvious one because you may not think the person's available. Louisville's the type of job that could attract a big name away from where they're currently at. And they may seem happy at just like LSU got Brian Kelly and just like USC got Lincoln Riley. So I wouldn't count out a big name like that, that none of us are thinking of because we just wouldn't even expect him to want to leave. Yeah. And this will likely all play out in the off season, right? I mean, Louisville doesn't have any plans right now. Mike Pegues is going to be the interim head coach the rest of the year. And then they'll wait till everyone's available in the off season. It doesn't make any sense to make a hire right now, unless maybe there was like an NBA guy sitting out that was available or something, but I don't think that's going to be the case. Going back to Ed Cooley. Do you think Ed would leave his situation at Providence for Louisville? I mean, I would think. Uh, it's it's a difficult deal there to win at Providence consistently. I know it, he's got a good thing going and the people there really like him, but that's an awful lot of money to pass up at Louisville. And I do think he could do a really good job there. I mean, I think he would handle the pressure and the spotlight really well. He seems to be very calm and very even keeled with that stuff. And he's got a great personality. I mean, he would be really good in all of his interviews and all the extra media responsibilities that you have at Louisville. So I think he would be a good option, but you know, I, I'd be curious to see how excited the Louisville fan base would be about Ed Cooley because he hasn't really had the March success that I'm sure Louisville fans are expecting their new head coach to have. And the one other Big East coach, and, and you mentioned him actually, and I was going to bring him up. Um, Kevin Willard has had a lot of traction in the last few months of, you look at Maryland that opened. A lot of Maryland fans thought he was going to be the home run hire there at Maryland. Uh, now Louisville opens. Willard's name gets brought up again. Kevin Willard seems to be the guy that when these bigger name jobs have come open, it's okay, Willard. Okay, Willard. 
but I've never gotten the sense from anybody around the big East that he's looking for a job like this. And I'm not, that's not to say that I'm it's ruling it out or, or anything like that, but like, you know, he, he's got this job at Seton hall. Seton hall has been good. They're winning, you know, they've had injury issues, things like that this year, but like, I, I just have a hard time believing Kevin Willard would leave Seton Hall. Now, again, Louisville with the money is, is different, but I, I just have a hard time seeing Kevin Willard leave for like a Maryland or something like that. I think he would undoubtedly take the Louisville job if it were offered to him. I don't think Louisville would have any interest in him. One, he hasn't really won the NCAA tournament or won overall the way I think Louisville would want their coach to win. Two, he is 100% from the Patino tree. I mean, he is directly tied to Patino, and I don't think that's the direction they're trying to go. I think yeah. they'll try to stay away from that. So yeah. I don't think Willard's a realistic option, but um, I think they could probably do worse than him. But I, I just don't think that's that's going to happen. So yeah. it's, it's you know, the other name that keeps getting brought up, and I'm a little surprised by, is Wes Miller. I've seen people talk about Wes Miller potentially if – Louisville just decided, hey, he would have been our top choice had we done this a year ago. We think he's a young star. He really impresses us in an interview. Um, you know, it's 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 two and a half million for his buyout after like March 31st. If it was before that, it would be three million. But that plus one and a half million is a salary, I think. Like it, it that's not too much for Louisville to buy him out, you know. I mean, I think yeah. Louisville could figure out a way to get that done if they really needed to make that happen. And I don't think that's someone that would be a big enough splash for them as a hire for them to go through all that trouble. But it's weird that multiple people have had him on their preliminary list. So we'll see where this goes. It's going to be an interesting one. Like I said, my, my guess is there's going to be one or two names involved with this that come from out of nowhere that we're just not expecting at all. Yeah. All right, Rick. Well, uh, another jam-packed episode here. Hope everybody enjoyed it. We'll have a uh, Creighton recap again next week. Xavier will go on the road to Creighton this Saturday. Is that Saturday. a must win? Is that a must win? You know, Rick, I'm just going to go ahead and say that it's not a must win on my end. But if anybody else wants to call it a must win, and that that's what makes everybody happy, look, I'm, I'm so not going to. It's a big game, right? We can at least go with big game. It's important. Oh, I, yeah, I don't. Game. Look, yeah, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand the fact that that this is not a huge, huge game for Xavier when you've lost three of the last five games uh, and your one win in there or two wins in there. One of them's Creighton and the other one is a DePaul game where you very easily could have lost that game on a buzzer beater. And like, don't get me wrong that if you lose at Creighton and you're staring at four losses in your last six games, that Butler and DePaul then become you know, a lot more important at home, but that's just where I sit. Right? Yeah. I got, I got you on your tangent. That's, that's your trigger apparently <laughs> is uh must win games. All right. Good to know. Big <laughs> All right. Game, well, thanks everybody for listening. Big game Saturday. If you're going to Omaha, safe travels and yep. uh, we'll see you next week. Through day.